you, Gillian, very much indeed. Well, um, our Bible reading this morning is Mark chapter 12, just five verses. Mark 12, from verse 13 to verse 17. Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, and I'll be reading from verse 13. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. So is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us together this morning. Thank you for giving to us the scriptures. We thank you that the scriptures are God-breathed and able to make us wise for salvation. And so we ask that you would speak words to us this morning that are timely, needful, helpful and wonderful. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, do please keep that passage open. Probably the most famous verse in our passage is verse 17, and it's best known in the ESV translation, which puts it like this. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now, people who never go anywhere near a Bible have heard these words at some time or other without really knowing where they came from or who spoke them. But uh, if so many people actually know the words, why has this verse made such a minimal impact in our world? It seems to me that one possible explanation is that most people remember the first half of the verse but forget the second half. In fact, in all probability, they don't even know the second half of the verse. And why aren't Christians more thankful for verse 17? Uh, do we perhaps think that Jesus was just brilliant at coming up with memorable sayings and that some of them are no more than beautiful phrases but with little relevance for us today? Well, I do hope that our study this morning will put that right because the, the five verses that we're looking at are packed with relevance for us. At one level, I can't help admiring Jesus' brilliant reply to his enemies. Now, I don't know about you, but um, if somebody puts me on the spot, it's normally at least 24 hours before I can think of what I ought to have said but didn't, and it would have been far better. But here, when Jesus is put on the spot, his answer is immediate, and it's absolutely brilliant. But more than that, it's very powerful, and it's very comforting. <clears throat> And uh, if you forget everything else that I might say this morning, let me say up front that the point of the passage is this. There is a government on earth and there is a heavenly government. 
And God calls us to acknowledge both. Not in the same way, but we are to acknowledge both. So, on the one hand, I do hope you know that the entire universe is being run by someone very, very wonderful. And if you're not acknowledging him, I do hope that you're going to be challenged to do that this morning. You'd be very unwise not to. And if you are already acknowledging him, I do hope you'll be greatly comforted. Now, you may have tuned into our service this morning thinking that uh, everything is a bit of a mess at the moment. Uh, The virus, your life, uh, your relationships. Well, if that's the case, this section has got something to say to you. And you may have tuned in this morning feeling that the ground that you're standing on at the moment is very shaky indeed. And again, this passage has got something powerful to say to you. So, as the passage begins, uh, in verse 13, Jesus is in the temple at Jerusalem. Uh, The religious leaders have been attacking him verbally. And uh, last week, you'll remember, we heard Jesus telling a parable about evil men on a farm who don't acknowledge their owner. Now, of course, that story was aimed at the religious leaders. They know that. They became angry and they left. But now this week, they've come back. Some of them have come back. And uh, I would imagine that in their absence they've been seething with anger and plotting. And uh, they come back to Jesus, and this is in fact their third confrontation with him in this part of Mark's book. And they've come with a question. It's actually a dishonest question because they're not really looking for information. They only want to injure Jesus. And they're trying to make as much trouble for him as possible. And I want to think with you about this under three headings this morning. First of all, the trap, uh, because these men are deliberately setting a trap for Jesus. Uh, That's what Jesus says, doesn't he, in verse 15. Then secondly, the escape, because although it is a serious trap, uh, Jesus escapes quite brilliantly. And then thirdly, the consequences. What were the consequences for the people then? What are the consequences for you and me today? So first of all, the trap. Come with me to verse 13. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. Now, we don't know how long it took them to come up with their trap, but uh, eventually they come back in order to catch Jesus out and get him into trouble. Who is it that does come to do this? Well, it's the Pharisees, and of course they're terribly religious, and it's the Herodians, and they're terribly political. Interestingly, these two groups couldn't stand each other. Uh, Under normal circumstances, they definitely wouldn't be working together. But their hatred of Jesus has brought them together here. And then in verse 14, you'll notice they begin with some flattery. Teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Now that is a very strange way to start because what they're basically saying to Jesus is this. You can see right through fake people. But we're fake and we've come to try and trick you. I think when you're talking to God, that's probably not the brightest way to begin. But then comes the famous question. 
Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now I wonder if you can see what an explosive trap this is. If Jesus says yes, pay your taxes to Caesar, well, he'll look like a pawn or a puppet basically bowing the knee to Rome. And the Pharisees will be angry and the crowds that have been following him will be bitterly disappointed. But if Jesus says, no, don't pay your taxes to Caesar, well, he's going to be considered a rebel, an enemy of the state, and the Herodians are going to be extremely angry, and of course the Roman government will turn against him. So the dilemma for Jesus here is, should he annoy the crowds or the Romans? Should he speak up and speed on his death at the hands of the people or at the hands of the Romans? It is a trap. Not only is it a trap, but the entire conversation about the coin is deeply insulting to the Jews. Because the Orthodox Jew looked on the coin as blasphemous. Uh, It was bad enough that they were living in their own land, but under the authority of Rome. Because it meant they were effectively prisoners in their own country. Of course, you could, I suppose, cooperate with the Romans, which is what Matthew had done before he met Jesus. But then you were considered to be a traitor. In any event, when the tax collector came round to collect the annual tax, you had to give him one of these silver denarius coins. But you see, for the Jew, these coins were practically radioactive. Because on one side of the coin was the head of Tiberius Caesar. And we know that because the Caesars were so full of their self-importance that whenever a new Caesar came to power, he would recall all of the previous coins in circulation, uh, which bore the head of the previous Caesar, and then issue his own. And next to the head of Tiberius were the words, Son of Augustus, God. Now, to a Jew, of course, that was blasphemy. So that was bad enough. But then on the back of the coin was the head of Tiberius' mother, And next to that were the words priestess. So another blasphemy. So simply to handle the coin was a problem for every serious Orthodox Jew. One writer says, the entire design of the coin was to show the world that God had settled down in Italy and his name was Rome. So it's a trap, but it's a very clever trap. Jesus knows it's a trap and uh, in verse 15 he recognised their hypocrisy straight away and he says that they're trying to trap him. Actually, the word in the original is tempt. Jesus says, why are you tempting me? Now, do you remember last week in the parable about the workers in the vineyard that the workers wanted to kill the son of the owner? After everything the owner had done for them, it was almost beyond belief. And now this week, they're asking a question which is designed to back Jesus into a corner that will lead to his execution. In other words, they're doing precisely what Jesus had said in the parable. Now why is it that there's such hostility to Jesus? Well, the answer in a nutshell is that it's because he's the Son of God. He owns everything. And therefore, he's a threat to everyone. He's a threat to everyone 
who wants to run their lives without reference to God. And why is Jesus such a threat to religious institutions then and also today? Well, the answer is because religious institutions often want to run things in their own way by their own rules. And Jesus is a threat. Interestingly, one of the effects of the various lockdowns we've had around the world has been a rise in the number of new religious cults. As you know, lockdowns have meant that people have been alone for longer periods of time than usual and spending a lot of that time on social media. And what that's done is it's created ideal conditions for every religious nut and crackpot looking for an audience. And you see, what these cults all have in common is that the Jesus of the New Testament is nowhere to be found. It's just another reminder, I think, of what we saw last week, that there is something deeply embedded in every human heart, including religious people, that wants Jesus out of the way. So that's the trap. Now let's move on and consider the escape. I don't know if you've ever heard of a man called Edward Lear. Uh, He was a 19th century artist, cartoonist and poet. And uh, he famously wrote the poem that begins, The Owl and the Pussycat Went to Sea. And uh, on one occasion, Edward Lear was on a train journey and there were two women in the same compartment with children. And they were reading uh, one of Edward Lear's books to the children. And a man spoke up in the carriage and said, you might be interested to know that there is no such person as Edward Lear. So what happened was Edward Lear got out his sketchbook and he proceeded to draw all the other people in the carriage. And he did beautiful, very simple portraits of himself, of the women and of the children. But then he drew the man who spoke. And instead of doing a beautiful portrait, what he did was he drew him as a cartoon. It made him look extremely silly and it was a brilliant way to uh, establish his own identity and undermine his opposition. But that clever response, I think, pales into insignificance alongside what we see here in Mark 12. Because in verse 15, Jesus says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So they brought the coin and he asked them, whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? Does Jesus know the answer? Well, of course he does. But he's asking them because he wants them to face the fact of Roman government. And then he's going to tell them that there's a higher government even than Rome. It's actually sheer genius. And probably through gritted teeth, they reply, Caesar. And Jesus says, well, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. The implication being that the coin goes back to Rome. And then in verse 17, and now listen carefully, because this is the climax, Uh, this is not to be missed, Uh, this is not to be forgotten, this is not to be avoided. Jesus says, give to God what is God's. Now, Jesus doesn't actually say what that is. But remember that he's looking at the people who should be giving themselves wholeheartedly to their owner. And that's even clearer 
when you consider that the image on the coin is Caesar, but the image of each person standing before him is the image of God. Because everybody, whether they realise it or not, has been made in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. So the image of Caesar is on the coin and it belongs to Caesar. And the image of God is on the people and they belong to God. So do you remember from last week's parable that the owner of the farm went looking for fruit? And friends, he wasn't simply looking for grapes. He was actually looking for people who would respond to him with themselves. And that's what Jesus is saying here. That God is looking for things that belong to Caesar to go back to Caesar. Why? Well, because human government is actually God's way of preserving some kind of order in the world. Their government provides hospitals and roads and law courts and schools and the world couldn't function without them. So God does want us to pay our taxes. But what belongs to God, and that's you, well, you ought to go to him. And if you want to know what it means to give yourself to God, it means that there should come a day in your life when either physically or mentally you kneel down before Jesus Christ and you say, you're the king, you're the saviour, I'm asking you to forgive me for living without reference to you and I'm handing my life over to you and I'm asking you to be my saviour and my lord from this day on. Now that of course is salvation. And then every single day after that, the believer, as best they can, says to Jesus, I'm dedicating my life to you today. You're the one who governs everything. You're the one who saves. You're the one who rules. And so this morning, I'm giving myself back to you again. Have you said that today? I do hope you have. So the reply that Jesus gives here is masterful. He hasn't compromised himself. He hasn't attacked Rome. He hasn't denied heaven, and his enemies can't accuse him of anything. And he's putting them on the spot, because now the question is, are they going to cooperate with Rome, and are they going to cooperate with God? And that's why, of course, this reply of Jesus challenges you and me, because, of course, it's not good enough to say, render to Caesar, and leave it at that. Anybody can do that. The real question is, have you faced the fact that there is a government with power on earth and there's a heavenly government with supreme power over everything? If you fight against the earthly government, you'll lose your liberty. But if you fight against the heavenly government, you'll lose your eternal soul. So it's a real trap and it's a wonderful escape. And now I want to say just a couple of things about the consequences. So here is Jesus, God in the flesh, and he says there are two legitimate governments. One's human, one's divine. And you might be thinking, well, that's blindingly obvious. Move on, Simon. But to many people, it's not. 
Uh, You might not like the human government in South Africa, but Jesus says you are to acknowledge it. And there's a government in heaven, and Jesus says you might not like that either, but you must acknowledge it. Second, Jesus doesn't actually say here everything that could be said about how church and state fit together. But you see, the church and the state have both been put in place by God and they are famously and rightly separated. That means they're not meant to run each other. Uh, The church is not meant to run the state and the state is not meant to run the church. But if I can put it this way, they are meant to be on speaking terms. So today sometimes we might hear the sad news that a married couple have separated and they might say to us, but we're still speaking. And when we hear people say church and state are separated, we need to say, well yes they are and they should be speaking to each other. Because the state has things to say to the church about our earthly responsibilities and the church has things to say to the state about its heavenly responsibilities. The communication must be respectful, but it is really important that both sides speak. But, you know, that's not always obvious, is it? So, for example, uh, we're all deeply thankful, I'm sure, for the way that hospitals have risen to the challenge of the virus. Uh, Doctors and nurses have been serving sacrificially for so many months, putting themselves in harm's way, doing their best to look after thousands of very sick people, often without the resources they need to get the job done. We're so very thankful for them, and I think we're greatly humbled by their example. But a couple of weeks ago, there was a video on social media, wasn't there? Do you remember seeing it? Perhaps some of you did. Showing large numbers of Christians praying outside some of the big hospitals in Cape Town, asking the Lord to forgive us for our spiritual carelessness and pleading with him to heal our land from the virus. It was actually a wonderful, wonderful witness. But friends, I've got absolutely no doubt that many people in Cape Town would have looked at that and said, well, how ridiculous. What good can that possibly do? Not realising that the prayers of these Christians were reaching the ears of the King of Kings, the one who sits on the throne of heaven with absolute power over everything, so that no doctor or nurse can actually get out of bed in the morning and go to work on the wards unless the King of Kings says so. That no doctor or nurse actually keeps breathing unless the King of Kings says so. That no patient actually recovers unless the King of Kings says so. Now friends, these things need to be said, don't they? And of course we need to say it graciously, we need to say it respectfully, but the church does need to be saying these things. Or to put it a little differently, the church needs to be deeply thankful for the hospitals and respectful for their commitment and expertise. And the hospitals also need to know that all their labours are actually under the supervision and the control of the Lord Jesus. And that without him, absolutely nothing happens. 
Then thirdly, Jesus is not teaching that you can choose your government. You can't say, well, I'll accept the earthly government but not the heavenly one. And you can't say, I'll have the heavenly government but not the local one. And you can't say, I'll have neither. The human government is real, the divine government is real, and you must acknowledge both. So Jesus responds brilliantly to his enemies. And uh, look at this, verse 17 says, no, notice the word, they were amazed. Literally, in the original, they marvelled. Now, where have we heard that word before? Well, last week, Jesus said, when people get rid of the Son of God and crucify him, and when they get rid of the keystone, that God will use that rejected stone to build a new supernatural and spiritual temple. And people will marvel. And of course we read that and we think to ourselves, well, quite frankly, my non-Christian friends don't think about these things. Uh, They don't think about Jesus. They don't want to know about him and they're certainly not marvelling. But you see, this passage says that that hostile group standing right in front of Jesus in Mark 12 were marvelling. Isn't that amazing? And you see, there's going to come a day, isn't there, when every single person who's ever lived in this world will marvel at the Son of God. His life, his death, his resurrection. And, of course, there are plenty of people already doing precisely that in all walks of life. Uh, One of my sporting heroes is the golfer Bernhard Langer, uh, twice winner of the US Masters. Can you believe it? He's been playing professional golf for six decades. That's quite a thing, isn't it? And he was converted just after his first US Masters win in 1985. What happened was somebody took him along to a Bible study for professional golfers on tour. And that particular evening, uh, the study was on John chapter 3, where Jesus tells a very senior religious Jewish leader that no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. And Bernard Langer says that in that moment he realised that his understanding of Christianity up to that point had been completely wrong. That it wasn't about being good and kind of earning a place in heaven as he'd previously thought. It was about grace and being given eternal life as a free gift and a totally fresh start with God. Uh, Raised as a Catholic, this was marvellous good news for Bernhard Langer, and he was converted to Christ. And ever since then, he's been a quiet, but I think highly effective witness to sporting figures in uh, in every discipline. So on the basis of this passage, friends, there is a government on earth, and there is a heavenly government. And the heavenly government runs everything. And therefore, friends, you see, you you can trust Jesus with yourself. You can trust him with your cares, uh, with your problems, with your loved ones, with your plans. Trust him with your life. Trust him with everything that's precious to you. Because, quite frankly, we have no hope otherwise. Well, let's pray together.
Gracious God, we, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his words. We thank you for his works. We pray that you would help us not only to acknowledge him, but also to serve him. And we ask that in these difficult days, you would make us a signpost for others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.